Hi everyone, I'm Jason Scorse and welcome to another episode of Dispatch from the Zombie Apocalypse. I hope everybody is doing well as we wrap up 2020 and what a year it has been. So hopefully you are getting some R&R and just chilling out here um, so we can kind of enter 2021 in one piece. So today I am really psyched to have David Roberts. He was at Grist many years ago and then for the last few years he's been at Vox uh, as a senior environmental writer there, and now he's started his own new project, um, a newsletter called Volts, and he'll tell you about that in this interview. I There was nobody I wanted to have more on the, the program here than David Roberts to end the year. You know, I, I interviewed him early in the year, and so we had some stuff to catch up on, and I think we're pretty aligned on how we see this year having played out, and also you know, where things are going to be headed, especially on the energy and climate front under Biden. We start out a little on the pessimistic front, just uh, the doomsday of American democracy, but we don't end there. So, you know, get through that. And then we get to, again, David's new gig, which is quite exciting. And, you know, a lot of the cool stuff that might happen under the Biden administration in the next year or two. You know, we're really trying to think pragmatically about what can be done, even if the Republicans control the Senate, even if they win in 2024. What are the type of things we can put into motion that have a chance of sustaining the climate and energy fight into the future, which is really as soon as this pandemic, you know, is uh, starts abating. That's really the big mission that humanity and certainly American society needs to tackle. And so uh, looking forward to uh, catching up with David in uh, next year to, to kind of review how we did in terms of our, not necessarily predictions, but our kind of hopes and thoughts on the Biden administration. But uh, check them out and uh, see what you think. So without further ado, I bring you David Roberts. All right. Well, welcome, David Roberts, to the podcast. Thank you so much for rejoining me again. You are the most... Uh, most uh, sought after and most repeat guests. So thank you. <laughs> Glad to be back. So at the beginning of 2020, when we last talked, we spoke about our kind of, we were just musing, is there anything Trump or the GOP could do that would get people to stop supporting them? You know, we were just kind of musing to the ether. And I think 2020 has answered that for us. We had the natural experiment and the answer is clearly no that we have now a, a political identity, a political movement, a political party that is in some sense, except of course at the margins, impervious to really going so low that people bail in mass. And I guess now that that's been answered, A, are you at all surprised? And does it open up new thoughts for you of kind of where, where this all heads? Well, you know, I've probably said to you before, like, I feel like my entire history of engagement and pay paying attention to American politics has been a series of me kind of learning, oh, partisanship is stronger than that. 
too <laughs> like oh and it's stronger than that too and like oh it completely wipes that out too and I, it, it, as you say we were sort of like wondering what are the limits of that like are like what if one party quite visibly <laughs> bungled a pandemic and got 300,000 Americans killed and millions more sick like is partisanship stronger than that <laughs> and like yep so it really seems like you're not going to get, I mean, knock on wood, I hope to God we don't get something worse than that to test the theory. But like, it seems pretty rock solid now that partisanship, that the that the sorting of America into two opposed camps has become so complete and those identities on either side so deep and so stacked as they call them you know the stacked identities so like what food you like where you live what music you listen to what you read like what politicians you vote for what policies you like all of it now is part of one big package there's like two big packages on offer in american life and you choose one or the other and those identities are deeper than literally anything and and that's uh, you know, and, 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 and these elections we're having are so close. They're just so on the razor's edge that who wins or loses? I mean, as big as Biden's victory looked, you know, it was like 7 million, whatever, in the popular vote. In the end, it was only like 40 to 60,000 votes in these two or three key states that made the difference. It was a hair's breadth. Again, <laughs> you know, just like it was a hair's breadth last time. And that means that like elections are being decided. It means two things. One is who wins the election is more important now than it ever has been, right? Like you are, who do, who wins the election means one of two utterly diametrically opposed worldviews and directions are going to lead the most powerful country in the world. It's enormously consequential who wins now. And the flip side is who actually wins. These elections are determined on the margins among the most <laughs> sort of flibber gibbet voters who aren't paying attention to anything and are like hmm. changing their mind about this and that and like lunging this way or that based on the flimsiest stories and just like the, the, the voters that you would least want to put in charge of the fate of the world's most powerful country are basically deciding elections based on just ephemera, you know, like for all the giant arguments people have about this in actual practice, the actual election was decided by just ephemera, just little random bits and pieces, you know, little bits and pieces of news that like, the candidates had limited control over. So it's just a terrible uh, situation <laughs> all around. And I will say that, that this is, I mean, this might be too depressing for this early in the podcast, but why not just jump into the, nah, go for it, right, go right for off it. the bat. Go but like, I basically viewed Dems winning the presidency and a Senate majority as kind of a last chance right if they had won a senate majority then they could have gotten rid of the filibuster and passed democratic reforms which are the only thing 
that is going to make this country's electoral outcomes reflect the actual balance of opinion in the country. Because as, as you know, and I'm sure everybody listening knows at this point, like there are all these structural features of the U.S. system of government that, that um, over-represent rural people. And, and as we all know now, the, the density divide, as it's called, is, is the single strongest predictor in American politics of your party. Basically, if you live in a sparse, you know, low population density area, either a rural area or sort of the exurbs, you're red. And if you live in the in the in in, in a dense city or inner ring suburb, you're blue. And it's almost a mechanical relationship. You drive from city center outward, and it just gets less and less blue, more and more purple, and then more and more red. And that's true in every region of the country, everywhere. So we've got this density divide that's utterly shaping American politics. And we've got a system of government that systematically privileges low density areas, which is why things are so close, even though Democrats have more people, even though more people want democratic policies, even though more people vote for Democrats, (laughs) it, it still remains close. And so I thought, if they want a Senate majority, they can get rid of the filibuster and they can pass basic electoral reforms, reforms of the Electoral College, um, get rid of some of the voter suppression happening so vigorously in red states, <clears throat> maybe add Washington, D.C. and or Puerto Rico as states. Um, all, these, all these kind of reforms that would help out the structural problems because right now we're locked in to doom uh but that didn't happen what happened was biden turned out a historic democratic coalition right he raised turnout but a historic right-wing coalition also turned out like turnout increased substantially on the right on the red side from 2016 to 2020, meaning not only did Republicans approve of Trump's uh, uh, behavior and and uh, administration, some of them got so excited about it they became voters for the first time in their lives. They were thrilled by it, like it pulled them off their couches out to the to the voting booth. So they also turned out in large numbers. And if both sides turn out in their sort of maximal numbers, then red states are going to stay red, which is what happened. So. We didn't get a Senate majority. Um, you know, I know people are trying to be super optimistic about the Georgia runoffs because they feel like they're supposed to be. But in my heart, I think it's pretty obvious that the chances of Democrats winning both those are extremely low. So it's unlikely. So Mitch McConnell is probably going to be in charge of the Senate, which means none of these reforms, no, no Democratic reforms of any kind, which just means no legislation, which means um, Biden's going to be wandering into a giant friggin' recession, a giant friggin' pandemic, every bit of which is going to be blamed on him after he's been in the White House for five minutes. Uh, you know, just a, a horrible situation. And then we will get the inevitable, inexorable midterm backlash, which, which, makes it very possible that Republicans take the House and then they have the House and the Senate and then they'll probably impeach Biden. And even if they don't, Biden says he's only going to do one term. So then Trump will come roaring back in 2024 against Kamala Harris, 
a black woman <laughs> who will mm-hmm. freak the fuck out of everyone on that side and again raise their turnout and again cause them to repeat their sort of Obama freak out and probably win. And then if we get a second Trump term, that's just it. That's just it. Well, I guess it for competent government. It's it for information that's not propaganda coming out of the government. Like you, you saw it over the last four years. We had these occasional like sort of public servants who, who viewed their loyalties as to something higher than Trump, you know, getting good information out and then getting fired, you know, over and over again here and there. And like, a second term, they're all gone and it's all propaganda and there will be no more free and fair elections. And like you, we're going to, the U S is going to go through what, you know, like Turkey and and like, we've seen this happen in several democracies recently where basically people vote in authoritarianism and then authoritarianism takes over. And to me, that looks like the road, we're on you know obviously I, I i no longer make predictions having been wrong about literally everything for the last <laughs> five years but but unless some large exogenous event intervenes it just looks to me like biden winning was a brief pause in an otherwise inexorable march towards uh, american democracy crumbling yeah yeah well look um, I, I, I am actually pretty much with you on that. I think the American project is largely done, but I, let's kick the rubble around a little for a moment before we get, we're actually going to end on a Got to kill notes. time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but also because I think the blame is a little bit broader and I want to get into two things that you touched on, you know, in your tweets a, a few months back, you, you took billionaire Mark Cuban to task. Right, because he was telling people not to give the Democratic candidates in Georgia, but to give the food banks. And I think Ugh. your your take was, you know, we need better billionaires or something like that. Because you know, this <laughs> I got yelled fuck- at so much for that. Yeah, but you were so fucking right. These these fucking tools, these people with billions of dollars, who if they had a fucking you know a, a one scintilla of wisdom, would take some of their money and put a billion dollars into rebuilding progressive infrastructure, you know, and doing the the hard work at the state level. But instead, they're going to complain about how both sides do it and, you know, give to your food bank and not to, you know, not to ending Mitch McConnell's reign. Right. But then I saw another thing, you know, let's 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 not just blame the billionaires. I saw a poll and again, put, you know, grain of salt anytime we talk about polls. But I think this one was probably right, which said 56 percent of Americans said they're happy with divided government. You know, they, they think it's good that, you know, Mitch McConnell has the Senate and we have the House and then we have to compromise. So the point I'm trying to get to here is it seems not only does the Republican Party is impervious to reality and any type of reconciling and and kind of with 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 truth, but it seems like this mainstream American culture does not understand the basic dynamics of American politics and what needs to things to get done. And it just seems like these tropes of, again, divided government and compromise and bipartisanship have have survived even after this four years of Trump, which is in of itself almost kind of amazing. And I'm just kind of wondering what 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 the fuck is going on with that? I mean, you're you're there's a lot to say about that. (laughs) But I think the sort of the aphorism I would draw from that is just one side is going to win the war in america because the other side 
won't be on its own side, right? Like the other side won't accept that it's a side. <laughs> it's like there are people for whom the sort of self-image of I'm an independent, I'm above this sort of squabbling and mud wrestling of politics. I have a broader view. I think we should all just come together. That, that self-image, all those people, if you probe a little bit and ask about their substantive views, are just Democrats. If you ask about their values, they will tell you values that Republicans explicitly disavow. Like they are on a side. They just don't know it or won't admit it or won't embrace it and certainly won't fight for it. So the other side is winning. And that's like, and, and part of that is just a difference in, I mean, I think one of the kind of most important and underreported aspects of all this and, and um, over at the Niskanen Center, uh, Will Wilkinson has a great long paper on this called The Density Divide. And it's just talking about the sorting of America into sort of, you know, high density and low density and, and how completely overlapping that has become with politics. But one of the points he makes, and I think this is really overlooked, is that one of the um, dimensions along which people are being sorted is personality. Like, and he just sort of makes the point, like, who are the people more likely to leave their comfortable rural, you know, their sort of cozy rural life and go to the big city in search of learning and new experiences and new people, right? They're going to be, they're going to be people who are higher in, you know, what psychologists call openness to experience. It's one of the five, you know, the big five personality traits. And if you replicate that millions and millions of times over, over decades and decades, what you get is a sorting, not just by, um, you know, by race and, and, and all these other metrics and by education, but by personality. And so what you're getting are two incommensurate worldviews, which have trouble even sort of recognizing each other's premises, right? So if you're low openness to experience, you don't view difference as a positive. You want things to stay roughly the same. You want there to be a clear hierarchy, who's in charge, who's on top and who's on bottom. You want, you know, familiarity, all these kinds of things. These are just the people who are stranded out there in rural areas, which are being denuded and economically drained and filled with opioids and everything else. And so they're being faced with rapid change. And the only way they know how to process it is to blame it on those who don't seem to be right, who, who's, whose circumstances seem to be getting somewhat better. And all those people that you might be inclined to blame are in cities, right? Like the immigrants and the and, and minorities and professors and elites and what have you. So, so it's a real difference in worldview. And one of the things that comes along with high openness to experience, the kind of people inclined to go to the city and inclined to get higher education, inclined to be sort of extremely sort of hyperverbal and thoughtful is this, is this, you value, um, what's the right way to put it? You value proper intellectual procedure, right? You value sort of like um, doing, thinking, 
through things in the right way. You don't just want the right conclusions, right? You don't just want conclusions that reinforce what you already think. You want some self-criticism and some self-checking mechanism in that. And that just inclines you to want politics to be kind of a salon, an argument among different perspectives taking place in this larger framework we're all supposed to accept, which is, you know, basic freedoms, freedom of speech, whatever, we all have dignity. And what they don't, those people don't realize is the Republican Party now has become so tribal, so um, homogenous, not only racially and, and in terms of uh, density, but in terms of literal personality, that they don't take that broader framework in which politics is supposed to take place. They don't accept that. They don't, they, they're, um, the, the, the welfare of their tribe as they see it, you know, sort of traditionalist, white, rural, patriarchal, Christian, whatever, the, the, the welfare of their tribe is the top thing. It's the top thing morally. It's the top thing epistemology, epistemologically. Like it shapes what they believe to be true. It shapes what they do. It shapes their politics. It, and, and it absolutely trumps these sort of abstract notions of like fairness, you know, or like these, these principles uh, of basic freedoms or these principles that like everyone should vote. Everyone should have an equal voice. These are the kind of things that that Democrats tend to think everyone takes for granted, but they don't take them for granted anymore. And the, the, and the system itself, the framework itself is crumbling and needs defense and only one side supports it, but they won't take its, they won't take its side. And this is not, um, I think, a, like a, a matter of education. It's really a matter of personality, like people- Temperament. It's a, it's a temperamental thing. It's a temperamental thing on the left to want to be not seen as kind of a just a tribalist partisan, you know, in the muck, you know, like I'm, I'm cleverer than that. I see farther than that. I see both sides, you know, like that temperament is ubiquitous on the left and it's just causing them to lose. It's to causing lose. them, it, but, but it's a real thing in the public. Like if you poll Democrats and Republicans and, and poll after poll, supports this republicans view compromising with the other side as a bad thing as weakness yeah. and democrats view compromise as good they view that as like the stuff of politics that's what shows politics is working so it's not you know people like to blame democratic politicians for being wishy-washy and talking about reaching out and bipartisanship and all this stuff they bash democratic politicians for that but democratic politicians are doing that because that's what their voters want to hear it's arguably why joe biden won is because your sort of average normie democrat wants to hear about unity they want to believe that they're in a system where you know, arguments matter and where we all have, where there's a larger unity, we're all operating within and you can't convince them that Republicans have left that behind. You just can't. If you went to an average normie Democrat today and just, or just pick a person off the street and just described literally what the Republican agenda is, they won't believe you because it sounds comic bookish it sounds like a comic book villain it sounds like 
a partisan attack. If I told an average normie on the street, Mitch McConnell won't send you any money despite the pandemic because he's holding out because he wants corporations protected by law from any legal liability for forcing their workers to come back and get sick and die. That is like the plot of a Bond movie. <laughs> and, he's, but, and he's doing it right in the open. And it's like, people just don't see it or can't believe it. It's, it, it, it doesn't penetrate. When people discuss it on the news, it just sounds like, oh, more partisan squabbling in Washington for some reason to the, to the <laughs> public. It's just like the idea, I think, to the public, I'm, I'm rambling on and I'll stop here. I just think to the, to the average sort of semi-engaged normie on the street who doesn't pay a ton of attention to politics, this notion that this notion, this model of politics is having two mirror image sides who both have their extremes and both have their centers and the extremes have captured them. And if we could just get the center back in control, we could meet in the middle and talk and discuss and come to a compromise. That basic mental model is like impenetrable on the democratic side. You can't get people to let that go. And if you tell them, no, what's happening now is we have a normal small D democratic political party of a type that is very familiar on the center left in, in dozens of other countries. And we have a proto-fascist, revanchist, authoritarian, pre-modern <laughs> party, a bad guy, <laughs> right? Not, not two equal sides, a decent sort of normal side and a real bad side that, that is almost inconceivable to people. It doesn't matter how much evidence accumulates. It's almost something that people just can't fit in their brains because everything they've read or heard or talked about American politics for decades has been reinforcing this frame they have in their head. Two sides, both with extremes, need to meet in the middle. This just like that gets pounded into their heads over years. And, the, and now for someone to come to them and say, well, that's broken. And in fact, one party has gone completely nuts. They just can't hear it. And again, you ask like, what would it take to convince them? How about 300,000 dead people? How about, which we just found out a couple of days ago, oops, Russia has hacked like eight different high level government departments and has had free access to classified U.S. government information for seven to eight months now on Trump's watch. Like, would that do it? Would that dent it? No, like nothing, nothing will. We're going to go down the tubes. We're going to fall apart as a democracy and become an authoritarian state with people still thinking that, with people never changing their mind about that. It's remarkable. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, look, we're going to we're going to move beyond this. We're going to go, you know, me, I mean, me and you, not necessarily the country, but, but this <laughs> podcast is going to get out of this space. But, but the last point of this that I really want to talk about, let's, 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 let's kind of, let's, let's, you know, let's bounce the rubble around for maybe three to five minutes more. Because <laughs> um, you were on the Climate One podcast with Greg Dalton a couple months ago. Mm. I love Greg. I love that podcast. And I was actually on it a, a couple of years ago when he did something on oceans and uh, you, he was asking you about the other side and kind of this centrist trope. And you basically said some version, I'm paraphrasing here, but that people on the other side want to kill us and that you, <laughs> that people need to understand that, that like, that this is not your, this isn't, we're not in Kansas anymore. Yes. Right? And, and 
I was amazed that Greg kept it on because he kind of, kind of, kind of said something. He's like, okay, okay, great. And this kind of moved on. And, you know, he's a relatively small C conservative guy. And I was amazed that that made it on here. So here, where do I take this? What I want to, where I want to take this is, is I think what, what, what the point we're at, the, the inflection moment we're at in American history is, is the reality is that the majority of white Americans, the relatively large majority, hold values so abhorrent, so horrible, that they shatter our sacred myths about ourselves so completely that we just cannot accept it and we have to keep lying to ourselves. That's I mean, kind of where I'm at. So come. If you look, if you look out, if you look out at what's happening right now, I mean, you have an election that by all you know, according to responsible factual sources and the data went off really smoothly without a hitch. Like was there was amazingly little, especially relative to what we all sort of dreaded and thought, like it it appeared to unfold quite lawfully and orderly and, and the results were clear and there wasn't, you know, there wasn't any fraud that anybody could find. There wasn't even any sort of large scale problems that anybody could find. A very clear election. And Republicans are trying to overthrow it right now. <laughs> Not that's something they did. It's something they're doing as we speak. And even as that is going on, you have pundits and Democrats out there saying, oh, now that Biden won, it's time to reach out, reach out to the Trump supporter in your life and you know, let's re-spark this unity and let's remind everyone we're all part of one big country. I'm like, dudes, could you wait until the coup attempt is over at least <laughs> before before launching into this? I mean, it is becoming comical. It's becoming comical and ludicrous. And it just speaks to what you say, that those myths have such a hold on one side right? not both but like have such a strong hold that they are just literally immune to evidence like killing 300,000 people letting russia wander into our uh, into our government's computers and then literally trying to overturn the results of a democratic election and throw the country into the greatest constitutional crisis maybe in its history maybe since the civil war even in the face of that we can't get just sort of normal centristy figures in civil society to say outright this is bad the one party is bad it's doing a bad thing not because of anything else the other side did right not because of economic not because of economic anxiety none of that because they do not view democrats as legitimate they don't care about democracy. They don't care if democracy says otherwise. They view Democrats as illegitimate and enemies of the country. And they are willing to use anti-democratic, illiberal means to win. And they're willing to use violence. They're calling for violence. There's violence happening all over the place. There are people showing up with guns, muttering about these crazy conspiracy theories. There was a poor FedEx driver got held up at gunpoint, a gun to his head from an ex-cop. And then when the police came and said, what the hell are you doing? Ex-cop said, 
this <laughs> FedEx driver is part of a grand conspiracy to steal votes, and there are 250,000 stolen ballots in his truck right now. For real. And, like, yep. of course, the police open the truck. It's just full of FedEx packages. Right, right. And the FedEx well, driver's like, what the fuck are you talking about? But <laughs> there's going to be violence. And, again, like, yeah. even as the violence ticks up, even as the FBI says far-right violence is rising, the violence is coming from the right. It's the alt-right. It's the white supremacists. Even in that, even in the face of that, the national narrative is, oh, Antifa on this side. Oh, you know, Proud Boys on that side, both sides, blah, blah, blah. We, we just can't. It's just nothing can break us out of it. I'm, that's yeah. my conclusion. It, yeah. Dying, mass death, right? Like, yeah. there's nothing. Overturning an election, there's nothing that can snap us out of that. I, I yeah. literally don't know. I can't think of what could. Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, I'm basically in agreement with you that it's kind of like we're in this. And so I guess that the final point I'll say on that is that the, the, the scary part about this is if I was to kind of narrate the next 20 years in the in kind of like 20, 30 years of how I think it's going to go down. Again, with the full caveat, as you said, I really ultimately have no fucking idea. And there's so <laughs> many twists and turns here and so much unpredictability. God, but if no you put kidding. a gun to my head and said, just tell me if I, if you know, what do you think is going to, what it's going to look like the next 20, 30 years? I think it's a slow death without any really major you know, flashpoints that are, that are going to, that are going to be that intense. I think it's just that it's going to fray little by little. And, you know, the McConnell's of the world or the, you know, are the Ted Cruz's and the Trump's and the Hollies and the Rubio's and this kind of death knell of democracy is not going to be that dramatic. It's going to just kind of be over uh, again over a long period of time until it kind of like back an article you said until we get used to it right like you said i think it was an article you you know that we get these new baselines these new norms that we just get used to are almost the scariest part of the whole thing that it's not going to be something so dramatic that we can point to and say that's what did it it's just i mean if you look drip drip I mean, one of the most frustrating parts of all of this is that it's all been done before. <laughs> it's all <laughs> happened before. Like if yes. you go read about how democracies crumble and become autocracies, it's a, like the, 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 the personalities of the autocrats, the rhetoric of the autocratic party, the sort of early moves they make, the, the, the inattention of the masses right like it's just all these are all just tropes that have played out exactly like this dozens of times before you can go read about the rise of hitler in germany it's it's the same damn thing everybody thought he was a joke at first and ridiculous and crude conservatives thought they could control him and get what they wanted out of him without risking anything like he didn't uh, initially he was elected and then his party played obstructionist and made government not work for 10 years before he ended up taking power so he started with with making politics look ridiculous and fruitless right it's just the whole script 
has been written and yeah. we're just playing it out in the most obvious dumb you know there's no there's no subtlety there's no aesthetic yeah. like this is the most disappointing thing about it there's no aesthetic appeal it's just the dumbest crudest version of something that's yeah. happened the same way a dozen times previous yeah. and it looks like we're just going to sleepwalk through the same damn script yeah, guaranteed i think to the letter <laughs> um, and that's why to be honest i'm, I'm getting the fuck out of here i, I gotta you know i got i got I, I you know I, I there's a lot about america i really enjoy and i got a great gig and california's cool and my family's in new york but nah five years i'm i'm fucking out of here i'm out of here yeah, uh, I, I have great envy for people who have dual citizenship and that kind of thing. I've been <laughs> telling my wife, like, I love you, but I might have to divorce you and marry a Canadian. <laughs> yeah. yeah. All right. Well, okay. On that, um, tell me about your new gig. Uh, tell tell yeah. me and, our, and, and my listeners about your new gig. It sounds awesome. Right. So I have started a newsletter, I guess, is what you would call it. It's sort of a blog where each blog entry goes out to a, an email list. So it's kind of a blog newsletter. Uh, and it's called Volts, and it can be found at volts.wtf uh, is the URL. Best URL ever. <laughs> I couldn't believe it when I found out it was available. I kind of lunged at it. it. Only in retrospect, I was like, was that the greatest idea? But I don't <laughs> know, people, people seem to like it. Yeah, my email address is david at volts.wtf. Uh, but basically, I'm just writing about the same stuff I used to, I've always been writing about, which is this sort of weird melange of clean energy, technology and, and, and policy and, uh, you know, science, and then also politics <clears throat> and, and where the two meet. You can subscribe. Uh, it's all free until January 1st. But then on January 1st, um, free subscribers get one post a week. And paid subscribers get all the posts, which are two or three a week, and they get to comment on uh, posts and join in discussion threads. But basically, it's just me being my own boss and writing about what I want to write about, the way I want to write about it, and and doing what I want. And so it's kind of terrifying, but also uh, quite exciting. And response has been really overwhelmingly good so far, to the point that I'm have transitioned seamlessly from being scared about disappointing my Vox bosses to now being scared of disappointing my, my new bosses, which are my audience. <laughs> right on, right on. Well, look, it, it sounds, it, it sounds outstanding so far. You know, I got, I got, we were before the podcast, we, we started recording. I was telling you about the stuff on, you know, carbon offsets. That's the latest, which I'm really excited about. And uh, I think it's going to be awesome. And I hope everybody subscribes I, like I've said for many years, I think, you know, you are the best environmental writer slash political commentator fusion of that flavor in the country. And I'm not just saying that. It's not a very big the, category. Though, yeah, people yeah, doing true. this right, exact right, right. It's, you know, it's, it's an N of, you know, 10 or whatever, but, uh, <laughs> but, but, but still it means something. What you do is awesome. Your take on things is but I don't mean awesome just in the sense of it feels good and it's cool, but it's substantive. You really, I think you unearth the real details of the things on the environmental beat that matter. And, and, and not everybody gets that level of detail. And, and, and I think it's a real value add. And I, I wish you the best in this. And I'm going to keep supporting you to the best way I can. 
So oh, well, so. that's awesome. I really, uh, I really appreciate the kind words. And one of the reasons I, I'm doing this is because, um, you know, when you write for a place like Vox, a big place, you're mostly writing for strangers, to be honest. Like most of your traffic comes from social media or search. So most of your audience, or at least some portion of your audience, is just complete newbies who have never heard of you, never heard of your subject matter, know nothing. And so you're constantly writing from kind of, you know, step one. You're constantly sort of assuming nothing. And, and it's really exciting for me to go back to a situation where I'm writing for an audience that is with me over time so we can sort of together develop you know, a kind of a shared understanding and an ongoing conversation. Like, I'm just excited to have a community, a community with me again. So I'm glad you're part of that. Absolutely. hundred percent. I'm looking forward to it because let's, let's, so let, I, and I think that's a good segue into the fact that look, me and you are on the same page. America is fucked up. There is basically half of the country that not only is not with us, but wants to burn it all down. <laughs> But that being said, Biden is smart. The Democrats are smart. The people, by and large, I see that he's bringing into his coalition to do the climate energy things you and I think are not only necessary, but existential and absolutely mandatory are really smart and and good. So with that said, where do you think are the areas that Biden is going to move on climate and energy in the in the short term in, in in term in this window this 6 to 12 month window where maybe <laughs> things can actually happen where are you uh, excited and happy and looking that things are going to be good in 2021 well there's a little of a difference between what i think could happen and what I'd like to see happen and what I think Biden is actually going to do. I'm not sure that those overlap quite, quite perfectly. I mean, the, the big question Biden has to answer is, is there any margin at all in attempting to get some Republican cooperation and pass legislation? That's, that's his big question. Because, you know, like I said, I'm pretty sure McConnell's going to control the Senate. So to get anything through, you're going to need McConnell to bring it to a vote, first of all, and you're going to need at least a few Republican votes. So if you think that's possible in these crucial first early six to 12 months, then you're going to be careful not to step on Republican toes, not to have too aggressive rhetoric, not to be too aggressive with your executive actions and your administrative actions because you don't want to poison the well or whatever. Um, you know, if that's your, and that is what I think and fear is on Biden's mind is he, no one really knows. And everyone speculates about this, about to what extent is his sort of bipartisanship and unity message, just, you know, political, uh, maneuvering. And to what extent does he really believe it? No one really knows. I worry that he really believes it. And he's off in the Senate now having chummy conversations with Republicans behind closed doors who are saying all the right things to him as they always do. Uh, you know, and he will squander some of his political capital seeking that cooperation, which in my humble 
opinion, my humble prognostication, is never going to arrive, just as it never arrived for Obama. They rope-a-doped Obama with promises of cooperation for his entire first term, never gave it to him, but succeeded in wasting an enormous amount of time and basically exhausting his political capital. And then he ended up having to turn to executive actions and administrative actions. So if I were Biden, and this is, of course, like what I'm about to describe is just constitutionally at odds with the way mainstream Democrats are built. But if I were in his position, I would just make it clear to my allies in Congress and to Republicans, look, my door is open if you guys want to do something, but I am not wasting one second begging for it. I, in my mind, legislation is off the table. There's just not going to be any, period. I'm going to admit that, accept that right up front, and thus waste no time or capital pursuing it. Instead, I'm going to go gangbusters on executive actions. I'm going to push the limits of executive action. Because one of the things, we don't really know what the limits of executive action are. A lot of them have never been tested. A lot of things have never been tried. And yes, it is true that we have an openly hostile Supreme Court sitting at the end of that conveyor belt that will almost certainly shoot down everything it can But the solution to that is not just to throw up your hands in despair. The solution to that, as I wrote in a piece, my last piece for Vox, is to blitz, is to do everything because you can just overwhelm them. They can only hear so many cases. Right wing media can only make up lies about so many things, right? Like there's only like this is what Trump showed us is like Obama tried and tried and tried to avoid controversy. And, and the perverse effect was it made it so hungry that it would just seize on any sack, you know, Obama wearing a tan suit or mm-hmm. not wearing a fucking flag pin or whatever it was like, they'll find something. So Trump just went the absolute opposite direction. He just gave them a scandal every five minutes and it, and, it, and he just over overwhelmed the ability of the system, the court system, the journalism system, the public opinion system, just overwhelmed the ability of the system to to grab onto any one thing and make sense out of it and make a story out of it and make it matter. So in a sense, like by doing so many bad things in so quick succession, none of them could matter. We couldn't make any of them matter or stick. And, and, and to me, that's the only way to deal with the perverse media landscape we have right now is just to overwhelm it. You're not going to avoid scandal because you have another side. You have Republicans who are just making up scandals. They, just, mm-hmm. they don't need even they don't even need an anchor in reality anymore. They don't, they're just they don't need like, the election showed this like they will literally they will literally just stuff up now. So they're going to just literally make stuff up about Biden right and left every day. So you're not going to avoid that. The only way through it is just to overwhelm it. And that is to do so many things that, that they just can't keep up to overwhelm the system with positive actions on behalf of the American people, making government work better, like put Trump's media strategy to work on behalf of good things. That's what I would do. I would just be like on day one, I'm signing 500 executive orders. Maybe a hundred of them will get shot down by the Supreme court. That's fine. Then we'll go back and for a two year sprint Mm -hmm. through the 2022 midterms 
all Biden has control over is what he does with his power, which he has over the executive branch of the federal government. And he should just go gangbusters with that power for the next two years. And that way, at the very least, the lesson he needs to take from Trump. So that's what I would do. That's what I'd like to see is just a festival of executive action that starts the day he walks in the office and does not pause through the midterm elections. And then let's see what the American people think about that. <laughs> I love it. Just overwhelm the system with awesome awesomeness. Awesome. <laughs> yeah, yes. Wouldn't that, wouldn't that <laughs> you know, be a change? Wouldn't that be a change? Well, well let, let's dig into that a little because I think, you know, I think there's some possibility that some flavor of that could happen. And I think there's a lot of what I really love about that is is there's a lot of truth to that in, in, in this, the, the, the fact of what you said is, of course, they're going to sue. Of course, the Supreme Court's going to shoot down a lot of it. But you know what? They can't shoot down everything, especially <laughs> if we put so much out there that floods the system. Mm-hmm. It's just not possible for the Supreme Court to shoot down 50 things if you put out 50 things, <laughs> you know? And um, I love that. So, so if you were to get aspirational here, and if Biden was to swing for the fences and go all out, where do you think he could really get some big stuff done that would just be, you know, that they wouldn't be able to shoot down because it's just too much of it? Well, I think the heart of climate policy, the heart of his climate plan, the heart of any credible climate plan is um, clean electrification, <clears throat> which is cleaning up the electricity system with more renewables and maybe some small nukes or whatever, and more hydro or whatever, more geothermal or whatever, making the electricity system carbon free, and then hooking up transportation to the electrical system by electrifying all the vehicles that you can electrify and hooking up homes and buildings to the electricity system by electrifying home heat and cooling. That's sort of the tripartite heart of the Green New Deal, of plans, sector-specific standards, accelerating decarbonization in electricity, transportation, and buildings are the heart of it in every case. And those happen to be three areas where you can make a lot of progress with um, regulations, with executive action. So, um, you know, for instance, CAFE standards, um, he's going to have an amenable head of the Department of Transportation in Pete. Pete and, Buttigieg. Uh, yeah, and, who, and whoever's running EPA, we don't know yet. But, but you know, n- never mind, like, restoring Obama's uh, cafe standards. Think about what sort of cafe standard could you impose that would effectively force the halt of internal combustion engine vehicle sales in the U.S. by, I don't know, 2035 or 2040 whatever. Like, think about how you could impose a regulatory system that would have the effect of totally decarbonizing light vehicle transportation. That's one thing. And that's on pretty legally solid grounds, especially relative to some of the other things. Uh, And then in the electricity system, it's like, you know, uh, Obama had a clean power plan and the Republicans replaced it with their whatever jerk off rule they had, which, (laughs) which, which, which their own analysts found would lead to more pollution deaths than doing nothing 
right, than passing nothing. They actively were going to kill people with pollution with their air pollution plan. And that's just like, that just passed by in a day. Nobody could even, you know, nobody could even pay attention to that. But it's just one of the absurdities. But never mind, like bringing back the clean power plan. Think about what is the maximum, like, how can you use the Clean Air Act to totally decarbonize the electricity sector? What does that look like? What parts of the Clean Air Act do you use? There are parts of the Clean Air Act that have not even been tried yet in terms of like uh, NACs, you know, sort of like national ambient air quality standards. That whole portion of the of the um, Clean Air Act hasn't been applied to climate yet, mainly because they thought it was politically vulnerable. But I just, again, just like, do it with that, do it, you know, do every part of the Clean Air Act at once, do it all at once. So like, go after electricity, and you can make a huge dent. And then with 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 buildings, it's a little trickier, because so much of building codes, like there's the federal building code matters, but like so much building code, and construction activity and zoning and all that stuff is either state or local. But I think you could set up ways like one of the things the Department of Transportation does is just dispense with billions of dollars of, 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 of federal money, just hands it out. And you can make those kind of grants contingent on good housing policy, on density, on you know transit-oriented development, on um, electrification of local fleets and on you know buildings you know a ban on new natural gas hookups um subsidies for um district you know geothermal district heating um you've got a lot of regulatory tools that can work and of course there's a million more beyond that in foreign policy in the department of interior in terms of like stopping leases for oil and gas drilling on public land, cracking down on methane release on public land, oil and gas projects. There's a million other things you could do, but to me, clean electrification is the heart of it, the core of it. Um, but yeah, I think I think what I really am bullish about on that is that there's still going to be a lot of need for stimulus, COVID relief, you know, for because of the, you know, the economic situation we're in. And if you could get in a lot of that clean electricity, clean power stuff in there with just big spending. I think, you know, I think a lot of that could be pretty positive. And I think it's actually possible, obviously not at the scale that me and you would want in a, in a first best scenario, but I think, I, I think it is possible. And uh, I think- we, Well, we, there's we, a lot of, it. it's worth noting, and I'm actually gonna do a post on this next week. It's worth noting that that the deal that looks like it's about to pass now, the legislation that looks like it's about to pass right now has a shitload of energy stuff in it. It is arguably going to be among other things, the most significant energy bill since probably like 2007. And now it's not all good and it doesn't contain nearly all the stuff that Democrats wanted or asked for, but it contains some really significant stuff for HFCs, for long-term storage, for for CCS and nuclear. Like it's it's a really big, there's a lot of good spending in there. The you know the, the larger question is will McConnell consent to passing any more stimulus once Biden's in power? And my guess is going to be No. And can they do a reconciliation bill, right? Like, you know, a reconciliation bill only needs 50 votes to get through. It sort of like has to pass. So you can imagine some green spending going in there. I mean, in a sense, green spending is the easiest is the easiest thing to get because 
all politicians like spending money ultimately. <laughs> and then like, mm -hmm. if you can do some green spending that benefits red states, which is not that hard to do, you might be able to get some. So I think we might get some along, you know, some mixed in with the stimulus. Uh, yes. But in terms of like any big climate bill, no. Right. Probably not. You know, but it is interesting, you know, from taking the economic standpoint here, you know, fossil fuels getting hammered, fossil fuel demand is not going to be climbing in any, you know, big way anytime soon. So that's good. Uh, then we get, you know, uh, the, the economy uptick after, you know, vaccines come out pretty big. And if it can be steered even marginally in a way, like you said, in these clean electricity ways, that hammers fossil fuel again. And maybe we get some kind of, you know, this, you know, a trickle that leads to a more, you know, a more larger, you know, a, a more larger way in terms of big green energy play in 2021 that has some, you know, that has a big climate impact. I don't know, you know. That yeah, maybe. One thing I, I think that Biden and his team should be thinking a lot about, and of course, like everybody has to think about this now because of the world we live in but like what are the kinds of things you can do that trump can't undo when he returns to the presidency in 2024 <laughs> like he can he can undo any regulation basically especially once he's thoroughly stacked the courts with cronies but the the one thing obama really did that he couldn't undo is obama spent a shitload of money kickstarting clean energy industries and once they're kickstarted they're going right like you can't take that back so so Absolutely. it's a question of how to seed growth and development in these in, in some of these nascent clean energy industries in a way that that becomes irreversible so you need to think about you, you know smart grid stuff along that hydrogen stuff along that you know synthetic fuels there's a bunch of there's a bunch of things and like transmission lines. Like once you build a transmission line, you're not going to tear it down. So just think about, you know, and it's super complicated to really apply this, uh, you know, rigorously to everything you do. But I, I hope people on the Biden team are thinking about what's what's irreversible. Yeah, no, I think that I think that's really smart. And, you know, a lot of the ocean work that I'm doing is kind of in that space in the sense of, you know, offshore wind and tidal and, and, and wave energy and all this really cool blue carbon stuff in, in whether it's in, you know, living shorelines and, and climate mitigation in terms of, you know, building back, um, you, know, uh, you know, infrastructure in coastal areas that have a lot of this stuff built in. And I think it's exactly what you said is these industries are jobs. They're in coastal areas. They're in a lot of areas that Republicans control and they're not going to want to hamper them. And so I think we could strategically get a lot done in this green tech that would not be reversible. Yeah. And you see even low key Republican support for clean energy tax credits. You know, those things have been renewed over and over again, despite in Trump's budget, uh, you know, trying to zero them out. Congress ends up supporting those getting extended. They're going to 
lapse again it's a fucking ridiculous policy to have this like fight over them every two years it makes for a wildly unpredictable regulatory environment but but you've seen republicans vote for those kind of like just mainly because it's not like a big high profile partisan fight right it's just kind of like sneaks into other bills but it goes to show you i think that they know that like money flooding into their states to build solar and wind is is money like jobs are jobs i think they they know that and and at a certain point the expansion of clean energy as an industry is going to reach the point where sort of um politicians natural graft and attraction to large <laughs> concentrations of capital are going to overwhelm their ideological objections at some point and like clean energy will become an you know a, a powerful lobbyist and it will become a powerful presence and that you know like there's this, I, I think it's probably already past the point now where wind and solar growth is so is too fast to be to be stoppable to be you know to be but we need a lot more than that so i think and also like making wind and solar cheaper is the number one best thing we can do for other countries as a as a climate foreign policy making clean energy cheaper is great it makes it cheaper for everybody in a way that just sort of like financial grants don't necessarily do in a way that like you know punitive measures like border adjustments or carbon taxes things like that don't do um making the stuff we need cheaper is a great way to induce action across the world. And we've done, and we helped, we were a part of that process. And let's say with solar and wind. And now we just need to think about like, what are the strategic other technologies we need to get growing along a similar pathway? Let's get batteries so that we know there have reached escape velocity. And then let's think about like grid stuff. Let's think about heat pumps. Let's think about, hydrogen fuels and electrolysis to produce uh, uh, hydrogen and just all, all, all these all these other pieces we need and just try to get them growing fast enough such that like even if Republicans take power again is they can't put the genie back in the bottle. Absolutely. And I'm sure, well, this is, look, hey, I think this is a really good way to kind of maybe start wrapping this up. And I'm sure we're going to read a lot about those efforts in your newsletter. So really psyched <laughs> on that. Um, but let me ask you two quick questions just to, to wrap it up on a, on, a, on a positive. I know you're not a big fan of the individual actions, you know, for climate, but anything you're planning to do in 2021 on your property, in your personal life, maybe to reduce your climate footprint that you might want to share with the listeners? You're correct that I hate that frame, but, it, but I will just say, if you are concerned with your carbon footprint, you need to think about how you get around where you live, right? So if you get an EV and insulate your home, or better yet, get an EV and live in a dense area where you can rely on public transit um, and don't and, and fly less. Those are the three big pieces. Those are the three sort of significant chunks of your personal carbon footprint is where you choose to live and how it gets powered, how you get around, and whether you fly. So if you just fly less, buy an EV, put solar panels on your house, get your house well insulated, uh, you've done the big things. And once you've done the big things, you're, you know, the kind of bags you choose to shop with or like all these other little picayune, like your choice of bathtub products, like all these little picayune choices really don't matter. Get those three in order and you're fine. But really, 
what you really should be doing, and you knew I was going to say this, what you really should be doing is advocating for collective action. And that doesn't necessarily mean just like writing senators and yelling at Trump on Twitter. There's tons of climate action happening at every level of collective action, states, cities, your neighborhood. You could organize a neighborhood group. You know, you could organize uh, uh, some sort of group in your city to help. Like every city needs to be moving its buildings off of natural gas onto electricity. So how is that happen? A big piece of that, which we're seeing now play out where people are trying to do it, is just public education, trying to convince people that A, induction stovetops are great and they're just as good as gas, (laughs) and B, heat pumps work in every climate and your house will be more comfortable for less money if you buy a heat pump and that's just education. So like everybody can play a role in like starting an educational campaign in their city and starting to talk to city councilors and, and city officials about how to get this process going. Just like collective action doesn't have to mean marching in the streets or writing letters to Congress people. It can be very close to home. It can be intimate and something that is meaningful to you, but it's got to extend beyond you, right? You and your house and your, mm-hmm choice of clothes and your you know choice of whatever is like make it collective somehow even if only at a sort of like a modest neighborhood level fair enough and then finally tell everyone why they should get a dog (laughs) oh my god uh getting our puppy you know we've we've had a dog for 10 years now for us but we got a new puppy during quarantine and it was absolutely the best conceivable quarantine decision because everybody's trapped at home everybody's bored everybody needs variety in their life and puppies definitely spice things up and give you (laughs) and give you uh something to do and be like a target for all this angst and emotion that's building up in everyone (laughs) that has no outlet (laughs) that is perfect and i did the same thing and i love my dog uh and uh you got a quarantine pup I did. I did. I, I did. I will send you photos. I, I got an awesome. Yes, puppy. I need. I was going to say. Yeah. And need, uh, it was photos, the best thing I did in 2020, 2020. It's uh, definitely the, the highlight of the year. If you're not going out to walk your dog, what other conceivable reason do you have to leave the house anymore? So like, yeah. if, if only for that. Absolutely. And I'm fortunate to live in a place where walking a dog on the beach in the forest it, uh, makes the day awesome. Um, so, uh, Hey David, man, it's so cool to catch up with you. Really psyched on your new venture. Really looking forward to reading it every week and, uh, really happy for you. It sounds like it's a real good fit for your, your mindset this day, these days. All right. So with that, have a great, uh, holiday season and a happy new year, David. And thanks so much for coming back on the podcast. Okay. Well, I hope you enjoyed that far ranging discussion with David Uh, Before I wrap up here, just a couple final thoughts. First, you know, when we were having this conversation, we didn't know who uh, Biden's pick for the EPA head or Department of Interior was, but that came out later um, in the day that we had this conversation, and it's going to be Michael Regan uh, from North Carolina. He's been working on environmental policy in the state there and doing a lot of really amazing Uh, environmental justice work there, and seems like a really outstanding pick to head the EPA. He is a black man, um, so again, more diversity in the cabinet, and 
given his focus in environmental justice to have, you know, a strong, intelligent black man leading the EPA after it's just been battered under four years of Trump with a real environmental justice focus is outstanding. And then um, Representative Deb Holland from New Mexico to head the Department of Interior, the real milestone here, she will be the first cabinet pick that is a Native American in U.S. history, and not only the first Native American to lead a cabinet, but the Department of Interior that controls, you know, huge swaths of U.S. territory. So having a Native American woman in charge of this agency to really help, you know, the climate fight and, uh, you know, know, wildlife preservation and indigenous rights. This is outstanding. I have worked with Representative Holland a little on ocean climate work, and she is just an incredible champion and leader. And, uh, Joe, just really excited about both of these picks. So that's, again, good news that kind of supplements and complements what David and I were talking about in the discussion. Last couple points here. You know, my first podcast of 2020 or actually the last of 2019 was saying buckle up for 2020 and so as we come to the end of this year this is my last podcast in 2020 boy was I right I did not predict the pandemic but I knew this was going to be a batshit year it certainly lived up to it in every way possible the attempted coup from Trump and his traitorous Republican cronies the death and destruction and chaos and just the real erosion of democracy and move towards authoritarian on the right in America, really going full speed ahead. Wow. You know, what was uh, what was in the uh, in the water this year? Uh, but look, we have a new administration coming in. And as much as, you know, there's a long term trajectory of America in some ways still is pretty grim. We at least get a respite from it. We get some leadership that really is looking quite solid for at least the next four years. And, you know, even without Congress, there's a lot these agencies can do. I do want to say that, you know, David was pretty pessimistic on the Democrats winning those Georgia Senate races. But that's my antidote for my last antidote here in 2020 is, you know, give some money if you can to those Georgia Senate races. I gave a couple hundred bucks to each candidate. I filled out a couple hundred postcards, you know, and so it's not over till it's over. And I think we have a shot at winning those seats. And just even if it's a 50-50 tie, Democrats would be in control of the Senate agenda. And that would change things in a dramatic, dramatic way. Plus, as David mentioned, they would have control over this reconciliation process, which could actually get quite a lot of money for a lot of the things he talked about in green infrastructure and green energy, R&D, et cetera. So that's going to be my final antidote is if you, you have a couple bucks or you can make some calls, you know, just Google Georgia Senate races, Act Blue. You'll find the, the site to donate. And there's plenty of uh, phone calling and texting and stuff that you can do if you uh, want to try to, you know, tip the scale on that one. But with that, everybody, you know, I'm come back in 2021 and we'll, uh, you know, a few weeks in, we'll have a new administration and a lot more positive stuff to talk about. And, uh, you know, the vaccine is starting to be administered. It looks like we might see the worst of this, uh, you know, pandemic in the in the rearview mirror in the first, you know, few months of 2021. But until we get there, you know, a lot of people dying, a lot of people suffering. I don't want to be cavalier about that or make light about that. So, Please, everybody, stay safe. Let's get through the next few months in one piece. 
and so we can come out strong in 2021 and get back on track. So with that, everybody, if you're enjoying the podcast, please rate it, share it with family, friends, and colleagues. Um, You can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, and of course, uh, sign up for uh, David's Volts dot uh, WTF um, newsletter and so you can keep abreast of all his analysis in this energy climate space. So with that, everybody, be well, take care. Happy New Year.